0: The Bioworld Insider Podcast. This is the Bioworld Insider Podcast. I'm Lynn Yaffe, Bioworld's publisher. Before COVID, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, also known as ACIP, wasn't exactly a rarely visited quiet backwater. It always had a full schedule and important decisions to make. But COVID changed the way the committee works. There are now twice as many meetings compared to pre-COVID times. Some public health policy observers have questioned whether the increased responsibility meets the CDC's needs and whether the CDC pays enough attention to the committee. Today, joining Bioworld staff writer Lee Landenberger is William Schaffner, who joined ASIP in 1982 and has rarely missed a meeting since. And as a result, he has plenty of insights to offer on how the committee works. Dr. Schaffner is a professor of preventive medicine at the Department of Health Policy and a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville. He is the current medical director and past president of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. He is the foundation's liaison representative to ACIP and sits in on the advisory committee's meetings. You may have seen him on ABC News, CNBC, C-SPAN, and elsewhere as a consultant on infectious diseases. But today, he's with us to talk about how this committee works.
1: Lee, over to you. Thanks, Lynn. It's a pleasure to be sitting with William Schaffner today. BioWorld has covered ASIP regularly for years, and we've seen its responsibilities change some, too. And Dr. Schaffner has been with ASIP for a while. Let me make sure I've got that right, Dr. Shaftner. You started attending ACIP meetings in, what, 82?
2: Yeah, that's right, Lee. And thanks for your introduction, Lynn, also. Yes, I was appointed a full member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices in 1982. I fulfilled my tour of duty. And since then, I've been associated with the committee in a capacity that's called a liaison representative. You see, the committee has full voting members, but then also has a group of people who are associated with the committee. They're accredited to the committee on behalf of a series of professional uh, organizations and societies. Uh, We liaisons participate fully in the discussions, but we don't vote. Just the full
1: committee members vote. And you had been a full committee member as well. Is that correct? Yes, in the beginning, starting in 1982, I think it's a four-year tour of duty,
2: I was a full voting member and then have been interested enough in the ACIP's work that I've continued as a liaison uh, representative on behalf of one or another professional organization. I'm there now and have been for quite some time on behalf of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases.
1: Because of COVID, the, uh, the committee's public profile is a lot higher than it was before. So a lot of folks are hearing more about it or hearing about it maybe for the first time, even those who work uh, in the industry. Can you give me and them an idea of what ACIP is designed to accomplish? Sure.
2: Uh, and I'm going to step back a little bit and let's start first with the Food and Drug Administration. You know, before a vaccine can be licensed, or in this case with COVID, get an emergency use authorization, it has to go through the Food and Drug Administration, and they too have an external advisory committee. Now, once the FDA authorizes the use of a vaccine, the question then comes up, and this is true for all vaccines, who ought to get this vaccine under what circumstances? And then the baton gets passed to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They have an advisory committee. That's the one we're talking about today, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. It's been around since 1962 and has offered recommendations about how vaccines of all kind, from infancy through senior citizenship, Ought to be used. And they debate those issues and then issue recommendations, which
1: by and large become the standard of practice. The pandemic probably changed some things at ASIP. They, they meet a lot more frequently than they used to. I, we said twice as much. It's maybe even more than that, isn't it? With COVID, there's just been an avalanche of specially called meetings. Both of the work groups.
2: The COVID vaccine work group meets weekly for two hours or two and a half hours discussing COVID vaccine issues. There's a separate work group that just deals with COVID vaccine safety issues. And the full committee has had more specially called meetings than, well, I've just lost count. There have been a whole slew of them dealing with these issues as the issues come up and have evolved during this very intense period, obviously, in response to the pandemic
1: and the gathering information about the vaccines. I'm fascinated by what the uh, voting members get to see because these work groups that you mentioned meet behind the scenes before the meetings start for for weeks or whatever in advance, and they're crunching data, and they're making decisions. And then they're giving this, this data to the, to the committee for its recommendations. Are the committee members seeing that data right on the spot there as it goes out, or do they get it in advance so that they can think about it and come up with questions?
2: Well, it depends on the uh, committee members. There are 15 members. You have to have each work group chaired. By a full committee member, and there are usually other committee members who are on that work groups. So those people have at, seen all the data and been privy to all the discussions within the work groups before they're presented to the full committee. Obviously, there are other committee members who are members of other work groups. During COVID, the usual work of the ACIP has to continue. And so there's Enormous amount of work to be done. Uh, A couple of other things should be said. The full committee members, as well as the liaisons, must adhere to a rather rigid set of conflict of interest rules that the CDC has set down. So uh, the members, for example, uh, may not participate in any kinds of grants and vaccine trials. Uh, related to topics that are under discussion. And even we liaisons have what we can do uh, substantially restricted. The other thing we should note is that the ACIP meetings, the full meetings, are a model of transparency. Every person in the United States can tune in via the Internet, watch the full committee meetings, From beginning to end, look at the data just as the committee members do, hear those discussions and figure out what are the um, issues that have come to the attention of the committee members and that they're questioning people about. So that's wonderful. And during each meeting, each meeting, time is set aside for public comment. If you wish to make a comment about any aspect of the committee's activities, uh, you can apply. There are usually more applications than there's time. And so on a random basis, uh, applicants are chosen to make their public comments. So uh, the committee operates and has for years and years as a model of openness and
1: transparency. And it seems to be successful despite this ramped up schedule and an, and an, and an avalanche of data. I, I wanted to ask you what, what your thoughts about the CDC's needs since the pandemic began. They've probably increased. And I'm curious, since the ASIP uh, workload has increased, um, are, are both their needs being met and do both serve the public well? The needs of the CDC have been,
2: in my view, exceedingly well served by the dedication of not only the cdc staff which keep this committee working they function as the secretariat they do all the administrative work making sure that the meetings take place etc as well as all of the external members and liaisons which uh, i mean they have at often very short notice, I can speak for myself, have had to reorganize their schedule because the ACIP, or one of its work groups, has called a meeting and will change what other things we've had on our calendars in order to fulfill our obligations to the ACIP.
1: There's also that, that question about the disclosures, too. That's another thing where, uh, you know, you need to tell everybody, you know, how much money you're making and who you're connected with i suppose that probably turns some folks away too they're like yeah i'd rather not and it's yet another sacrifice i'm not sure is the right word but it's it's yet another thing that they need to do that's that's uh, important
2: well when committee members or, or applicants or suggested nominees are put forward on a periodic basis the nominees are all instructed about the conflict of interest obligations. And they have to consider that because they may be in the midst of a large clinical trial related to vaccine A, B, or C, and whether they can withdraw from that during their time on the ACIP or whether their commitment to the trial is such that they want to continue. And that will help them decide whether the to keep their own name in nomination. Yes, those are reality checks uh, for sure. And even we who are liaison representatives recognize, we don't get compensated as I say, but uh, there are things we may not do. Uh, and uh, we have to accept that if we're going to uh, sit at, on the, uh, around the outer table when we used to get together uh, in place uh, and and participate in these discussions,
1: and we accept doing that. So, give me some idea if you're if you're an ACIP member and you're pondering a COVID vaccine, for instance. The data comes from work groups, and I think the data also comes from the vaccine developer. Is that right? And then give me an idea of how. So the work group takes the data and then makes a conclusion and then passes it along to the committee. What happens then?
2: So the work group, first of all, will consider the, uh, the epidemiologic and clinical characteristics of the disease that is, is intended to be prevented. Uh, for example, um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the issues before the ACIP at the present time is whether vaccines ought to be given to children of various ages. So the epidemiology of this disease, the occurrence of COVID in children and its severity will be assessed first. What is it we're trying to prevent? Is this a public health problem of importance? Uh, Then we'll look at the vaccine and we will receive all of the information and perhaps more, if more has been developed, that was presented to the Food and Drug Administration. Everything regarding how this vaccine works, both at the laboratory bench, in animal models, in early and the larger clinical trials. We will pay attention to effectiveness, how well does the vaccine work, what can we anticipate telling the general public, and of equal importance, and sometimes overlooked, is safety. How safe are these vaccines? What sort of immediate and local reaction? Sore arm, redness around the injection site, and other potential rarer, but nonetheless severe adverse events might be associated with these vaccines. That's discussed. And then a whole series of subsidiary issues. What's the cost-benefit analysis? What's the feasibility Can we implement a vaccine recommendation in a practical fashion? We live in the real world. This is not a theoretical exercise. What will be the acceptability on the part of healthcare providers in administering the vaccine and also the patients or their parents who have to get either themselves or their children vaccinated? And there's a structured way that the ACIP evaluates the quality of the evidence, how strong is the evidence, and then they go through an evidence-to-recommendations framework. They do this in a very careful, thorough fashion each time. So you have an open structure That I think even lay people who are listening carefully, you have to attend to this, but you can listen carefully and you can understand how it is that the committee membership uh, assesses the quality of the evidence and the need for the vaccine, its effectiveness and safety as they come to their conclusion, making recommendations as to who and when they ought to get vaccinated.
1: Does the committee always, the adcom always get the complete data that it needs to offer guidance to the director?
2: (laughs) I'm laughing. A, A friend of mine who was a member of the committee Said uh, being a member of the committee is a little like drinking from a fire hose because you get a constant stream of data that you have to incorporate. And he said, and every time you go away from the fire hose, you wish you had more data. So you we always wish that we had more data. For example, Lee, let's be quite specific, so your readers get uh, your listeners uh, get this in mind. We don't know now still what the duration of protection is from vaccination and or boosting. I mean, that's usually a pretty critical element of making uh, vaccine decisions. And what we've had to say is this problem, this public health problem, this pandemic is of such urgency. We can't wait for that to be decided. We're going to start vaccinating people. Obviously, we have. and stay tuned as we get more information we will tell you. And the committee did. They said, now, hello everybody, you need to get a booster. People keep asking, will I need another booster? And the committee says, stay tuned. We don't know that yet. We'll let you know when we know. And you'll know we know when you tune in to the meetings because it will all be done Incomplete transparency. So the the short answer to your question is, I cannot remember a vaccine decision of any kind where the committee didn't wish they had a little more data or maybe a lot more data on this or that aspect. But (laughs) you have to make decisions right now because we live in the real world and then we'll modify things down the road if we have to, I mean, this process has worked remarkably well now for sixty years. We have this this committee that we're talking about has been the model
1: for similar so committees you talk that about have been set up in other countries right now. I, around it's the world. My understanding that. Probably the CDC director sits, you know, listens in or watches these meetings and pays close attention to everything, and then that the director gets the guidance and then sets policy. Is that accurate?
2: Uh, Close. It is an advisory committee, and we are advisory to the director of the CDC, the director then makes decisions, and sends that up to the Department of Health and Human Services. And they get a look at it, too. And on occasion, these recommendations have gone to the White House. And the political leadership of the country has looked at them also. So the committee is advisory, but uh, 99.9% of the time, the committee's recommendations are endorsed by the center's director, and, Got
1: it. Uh, so, since there's this added the workload and all this extra data structure. from the pandemic, does anything need to change in the process at ASIP to be better informed or to make better guidances?
2: Well, there have been lots of discussions from time to time, depending upon even the routine workload of the committee. Um, uh, you know, public health has focused very traditionally over decades and decades on maternal and child health. That's critical to public health, securing the health of women who are pregnant and then their newborn children and then children as they grow up and increasingly adolescents. Now, more and more vaccines are being developed that are focused uh, not so much on the pediatric population, but on the adult population. And that's an arena in which uh, public health has never been quite as elaborately involved as in maternal and child health. And so the committee is working in the adult immunization space, if you will, uh, and is is getting more and more sure-footed as it does that, but we who are uh, internists uh, and, and associated with the committee uh, still have some suggestions about how the committee could function even better uh, in, that, in that context. Uh, that's perhaps a subject for another discussion uh, because we as a society haven't committed to providing resources for adult immunization the same way we have provided resources for pediatric and maternal uh, vaccination, so some of the some of the difficulties that the ACIP has had relate to so financing. So pandemic-related of problems. Who's paying for the vaccine right and who's paying for the administration fee? Uh, we 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 don't see those, and that's because the United States government has paid for all the vaccines. So that issue disappears. And that makes it a much more comfortable issue for the ACIP uh, to make That's recommendations the last of my questions, Dr. Really Shi. was there something the that
1: we didn't spectrum? mention or you think needs a little more elaboration?
2: I would just emphasize again the really extraordinary commitment. Of the full members and all of my colleagues who are liaisons to this process. You know, it's not very often that in a public policy arena, a group of people who are well-intentioned and extremely experienced will get together, have a free and, as I said, completely open discussion about what the issues are, then come together Come together, compromising on a set of recommendations that are designed to work. And then those recommendations really are implemented and become the standard of practice. It's an extraordinarily uh, rewarding activity aimed at what I think is medicine. Thanks, Dr. Sister. It's,
1: it's always a pleasure Mainly, talking to you. I greatly appreciate disease. your time. Oh, you're welcome. Lynn, back to you. This has been a fascinating discussion. Certainly BioWorld
0: has been covering the development of drugs and vaccines for more than three decades, so we're relatively familiar with the process, but because of the pandemic, never before has the regulatory process for the approval of a vaccine or drugs been under such scrutiny. So we really appreciate your detailed explanation about behind the scenes and, and how this works. As always, Bioworld will continue to keep you informed of all the most important scientific, clinical, and business updates. That's our show for today. If you need to track the development of drugs, turn to Bioworld.com. Follow us on Twitter or email us at newsdesk at bioworld.com. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for joining.
2: BioWorld, published by Clarivate, is a subscription-based news service but all of our COVID-19 content, over 6,000 articles and data entries since the start of the pandemic, are freely accessible.